once again, it's my great privilege and honor for me to be here. I've passed by First CRC many times uh, during my life here in Hamilton. Uh, it's good to finally step through those doors and be among you. Um, over there at New City Church, where I've been serving for a little while, we've heard a lot about First CRC, of course, and we've interacted with many of you. So it's finally good to be able to commune with you and worship together as the body of Christ. Well, as we look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 to 21, um, I want to recall a movie that I watched quite a long time ago, and I think I was in my teens when I watched this. Some, some of you may have seen the movie Donnie Brasco. Donnie Brasco with Al Pacino and Johnny Depp, which tells of an FBI undercover agent who infiltrates the New York Mafia family and works for six years as an informant. And I didn't know when I first watched this, but the movie was based on the true life story of uh, an FBI special agent named Joseph Pistone, whose undercover work led to more than 200 indictments and over 100 convictions of Mafia members. But going undercover for so long and so deep meant paying the price. All traces of Joseph's old life were wiped out when he went undercover. Not even his close friends and family and colleagues knew where he'd gone. He struggled with his personal life because he often went months without seeing his wife and three daughters. And the thing that the actor Johnny Depp play, uh, portrays so well in the movie are the subtle mannerisms and turns of speech that Pistone adopts as he goes deeper and deeper into Mafia culture. He, his life in the Mafia changed him drastically, both small and big ways. One of the biggest questions that the church is asking today and has been asking for decades is this. What does it look like for the church to engage with a secular culture? Is it possible for Christians to enter into meaningful engagement with culture without compromising what is central to their faith? In other words, are we all destined to be Joseph Pistones? Is our only option to go deep undercover, to erase all outward distinctions, to conform to culture as to look like just like everyone else? Or must we withdraw from culture, withdraw from culture, and found our own subculture and protect it at all costs? Is isolationism our only alternative to assimilation? I'll put it another way. In Psalm 137, we hear the lament of the Jewish exiles as they wept by the rivers of Babylon. And as they remember Jerusalem, their tormentors demanded of them, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the response of the psalmist to his tormentors 
And really our response to God is a poignant one. He sings in Psalm 137 verse 4, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, isn't that the question for the church in a secular age? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can God's people whose citizenship is ultimately in heaven, who live as sojourners and exiles in a beautiful but broken world that persistently alienates and marginalizes them, how can God's people engage meaningfully with a culture without compromising convictions? Is that even possible? The young Jewish exiles in Daniel chapter 1, they believed it was possible. And they found, they found a way to keep singing the Lord's song in a foreign land, to remain faithful to their God even as they engaged meaningfully with their captors. How? In this story, we see three principles of faithful engagement with culture. Three ways that God's people can engage meaningfully with culture without being corrupted by it. Number one, uncompromising faithfulness to God. Uncompromising faithfulness to God in verses 8 and 9. Number two, the second principle of faithful engagement is shrewd and respectful engagement, shrewd and respectful engagement. Number three, confidence in the faithful sovereignty of God. Confidence in the faithful sovereignty of God. The first principle of uncompromising faithfulness, how Daniel could sing, continue to sing the Lord's song in this pressure cooker of assimilation is that he refused to compromise his faithfulness to God. In the first five verses of Daniel, which we did not read, we read of how the Babylonians, as part of their program of conquest, took the young royalty and nobility from the nations that they annexed. They brought them into the royal courts of Babylon in order to reprogram, brainwash, assimilate, them in the ways of Babylonian culture. How? By re-educating them, by giving them foreign names. And if you look closely at the names of the four Jewish youth that are mentioned here, you'll find the name of the God of Israel embedded in each of their names. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. And it's no accident that the new Babylonian names given to these youth imposed upon them, contained not the name of Israel, the, God, the God of Israel, but the names of Babylonian gods, such as Bel and Nabu. They re-educated them, they imposed foreign names, and they imposed foreign foods. And not just any food, it was the food and wine of the king. In verse 5 we read, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now why is that significant? 
Uh, when my parents served as missionaries somewhere in Asia, uh, the single biggest obstacle for my mother in embracing her new culture as a missionary and the people was the food. She simply could not find the local food palatable, so she never felt completely comfortable, never truly home, anywhere she went in the country. You see, food and drink are not only about sustenance, they're one of the strongest indicators of comfort, safety, a sense of belonging, and pleasure. And in indulging in the very best of what culture has to offer has a powerful, sedating, domesticating effect on even the most resistant of captives. And the Babylonians knew that. But in verse 8, we read that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Notice that this, this was no spur-of-the-moment decision. Before he utters a single word in response to the imposition of food or takes any action, an inner dialogue takes place within the heart of Daniel. And we're given a glimpse into his heart. In his heart, Daniel resolved not to be defiled in the sight of his God. Now, for many of us, this is a very confusing statement. What does it mean to be defiled? For some of us, this sounds like an overreaction, if not irrational superstition. It's just food. Just food and drink. What does it matter what you eat? How can food defile us? But if we think about this, it's really not that hard to identify with the idea of defilement. We all know what it feels like to, to be disgusted, to feel degraded. The evolutionary moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt tells a real-life story of truly horrific acts of deviance, perversity, violence, and killing that took place in a house which the details of which I will not repeat here. But in the aftermath of the atrocity, the house now sits empty and abandoned, and most of the evidence of what happened has been removed. And Haidt asks this question, how would you feel if someone were to offer you a chance to live in that house where these atrocities took place at a steep discount? And he then asks a follow-up question. Might you feel that the stain would be expunged only if the house was burned to the ground? Whether you're religious or not, everyone would feel great revulsion at living in such a house. At least most people would. And that's because no matter what we believe or not believe, we all hold certain things to be sacred. Whether it's human life the Canadian flag, a monument, heroes or saints, 
or principles such as fraternity, liberty, and equality. And when these things that we hold sacred are violated or threatened, we feel disgust, anger. We feel degraded, debased, defiled. For Daniel and his friends, what they held sacred above all else was their relationship with the God of Israel. And their relationship was based on a covenant that God had made with them where he promised them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And living as God's people meant that they held to certain practices that distinguished them from their neighboring peoples, such as avoiding certain foods and practices. So at the heart of what appears to be strange, arcane dietary practices is a sacred covenant relationship with God. And Daniel, even as he accepted the education of the Babylonians and the foreign names imposed upon them, he resolved in his heart that he would reject the food offered to him and his fellow exiles because he was convinced that it would defile him and endanger his relationship with God. But why? What was it about the king's food and the king's wine that Daniel was convinced would defile him? Well, the text doesn't make that explicit. Now, some have suggested that it was because the food would have been ceremonially offered to the idols of Babylon, but then the vegetables would likely have been offered in the same way, and he accepted the vegetables. Again, we're not told precisely why Daniel perceived the eating of the king's food as defiling. Well, what we can be certain is that Daniel saw it as defiling. And that's sufficient. What the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 14, is helpful here. The Apostle Paul says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. You see, Sin is not only about behavior, external actions, or breaking some impersonal law. Sin has to do with relationships and the intentions, the motives of the heart. In the same way, what we eat or drink is no longer a matter of violating God's dietary laws because Christ declared all food clean. But if I'm convinced in my heart that it is wrong in the sight of God and I still do it, it's wrong. Or as Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 14, if I eat and drink and knowing that I might hurt the sensitive consciences of my neighbor in doing so, it is wrong. You see, for Daniel, at this early, crucial, 
juncture of his captivity, when he had to choose between passively allowing himself to be assimilated or staying faithful to his God, he was convinced that refusing the king's rich food was the right thing to do. Therefore, it was the right thing to do. But there's something else here. There's something else about Daniel's inner dialogue that is important to notice. Daniel resolved, we read, not to defile himself. The word translated resolved here in the ESV is a combination of three words in the Hebrew. Fix, heart, upon. He fixed his heart upon not defiling himself. And this combination of words is used only a handful of times in the Old Testament. One of those instances is found in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, where God speaks judgment against his people. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. We read, they refuse to pay attention and turn a stubborn shoulder and stop their ears that they may not hear. And here it is. They made their hearts diamond hard. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts hath sent by his spirit through the former prophets. They made their hearts diamond hard. To do what? To make themselves impervious to the teachings and warnings of God and his prophets. And that same diamond-hard, unmoving, uncompromising determination was what Daniel had. But in a positive sense, when he fixed his heart to value and honor and remain faithful to his God, no matter what anyone else was doing around him, even if it cost him his life. But no matter how determined we are, no matter how strong our resolutions, none of it is enough without God's grace. We read in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And it wasn't just favor with the court officials that God gave. We see in verses 11 to 16 that God also gave to Daniel a small community of like-minded, determined youth who stood with him in this test. God, the sovereign, gracious king, was powerfully at work even in Babylon. And he used the single-minded faithfulness of Daniel and his friends to demonstrate his supremacy over all the kingdoms of the world. You see, our resolutions, as strong as they may be, are not enough in the face of great pressure to compromise. But when we determine that we will be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, He will give us grace to stand firm even in the face of great opposition, even in the face of impossible odds. 
So you might be thinking right about now, I don't really face temptations to defile myself with food. What are some of the things that we might feel defiled by today? What are some things that defile us in the sight of God today? Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 18 to 23. Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile person. What Jesus is saying is, there are nearly limitless ways that we can defile ourselves because there are nearly limitless ways in which our hearts devise ways to dishonor God. As we mentioned earlier, when, when believers practice their Christian liberty in such a way that they knowingly make others stumble, they defile themselves and they dishonor God. When Christians knowingly take ethically questionable shortcuts in the workplace that might lead to advancements and promotions, they defile themselves and compromise their standing before God and the watching world. And at the root of all sin, we defile ourselves and we try to wrest the control of our lives away from the hands of God. But the good news of the gospel is that whatever ways we have defiled ourselves in the sight of God, if our faith and repentance are in Christ, we can be certain that our defilement has been lifted because Christ bore our defilement and shame upon himself when he took our place on the cross. Jesus was reviled so that we might be made lovely. He bore our guilt and shame so that we might be washed clean. And he's calling us out of the prison of self-worship into the freedom of knowing, loving him, finding our ultimate identity in him, being totally devoted to him. So friends, have you fixed your heart upon total devotion to God, like Daniel? You see, spiritual purity is not just about avoiding sin. It's not just about avoiding defilement. It's about wholehearted devotion and worship. It means that all that we are belongs to him and is dedicated to his glory. And if you know the mercies of God shown to you in Jesus, God is calling you to give the totality of your being.
to the God who has given the totality of himself to us. In our engagement with culture, we must be uncompromising in our devotion and faithfulness to God. We must be shrewd and respectful in our engagement with culture. That's the second principle of faithful engagement with culture, shrewd and respectful. You know, sometimes people associate religious convictions. Sometimes people associate religious zeal with narrow-mindedness, backwards, ignorant, irritating prudishness, picketers who reject things out of hand just because they don't understand it. If that's how you feel, or that's how your neighbors feel, well, let's be honest, they would have some justification. But Daniel's engagement with his captors teaches us that standing firm according to your religious convictions need not be obnoxious, irritating, or brash. We read in the latter part of verse 8 that Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. We don't have the exact words that Daniel spoke to Ashpenaz, the the chief eunuch, but there's nothing proud, there's nothing overbearing about the words asked and allow. Daniel doesn't try to embarrass Ashpenaz. Rather, he shows respect for the authority that the chief eunuch had in the court. Instead of demanding, he requested permission not to defile himself. And Ashpenaz responds just as patiently, just as respectfully, because he clearly wants to grant Daniel his request, but he admits that he's scared. He's fearful that if he responds to Daniel in a positive way, then his life is at stake. Then Daniel responds with shrewdness and wisdom by asking for a trial period in which they will eat only vegetables and water for 10 days. Again, his words are respectful, polite, humble, and also ingenious, because he leaves the ball in their court. He says, deal with your servants according to what you see. If you see us looking sicklier, then the others who are eating and drinking all they want do what you need to do. It's brilliant. But imagine if he had made a proposal while being caustic and snobbish. It wouldn't have gone over well, I'm sure. And remarkably, his request is granted. And remember that Daniel are, and his friends are prisoners of war. They're captives. They have no rights. A court official had no obligation to accommodate their request. But God, we read, moved the heart of Ashpenaz to show Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 9. This combination of shrewd, winsome, humble, respectful dealings with the wider culture is something that the church and individual Christians need to take to heart. 
especially in an age like ours that is marked by so much animosity. It dismays me to no end when I see professing Christians behaving belligerently, mockingly, self-righteously in their interactions, whether in person or online. All the more because in our age of incivility, the people of God have a glorious opportunity to shine like the stars in a dark night. Listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say about this. A man who knew something of mistreatment at the hands of hostile forces. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Peter says, But even if, she, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I remember that this is the same Peter who, when Jesus was being arrested, brandished a sword in violent response to what he saw as injustice. But this older, wiser Peter has learned his lesson, and he teaches us that we must engage culture with gentleness and respect, even when we are slandered and reviled. Because Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he was mistreated, he did not mistreat, but continued entrusting himself to his Father, who judges justly. When I was a teenager, a long, long time ago, I used to play the cello. Um, and if you know anything about the competitive music world, you know that this was serious business. It required hours and hours of practice and lessons and when my cello teacher and I were preparing for a competition, we would ramp up the hours and increase the number of lessons. In the weeks leading up to a particularly challenging competition, my teacher wanted to hold a lesson on Sunday mornings. I felt uncomfortable about it, but I agreed nonetheless. But after one Sunday morning lesson, I felt convinced that I shouldn't be doing lessons on Sundays because, well, I don't even know exactly what I told him or what I was thinking in that moment. It was a long, long time ago. All I remember is that I was less than articulate. I mumbled a lot. I was a nervous wreck. And my teacher, well, let's just say that he wasn't very pleased. And he did his best to try to persuade me to change my mind. But at the very next lesson, when I expected the worst, he surprised me by saying that he respected me for holding firm to my convictions. Now, I wasn't merely as shrewd as Daniel 
I was a nervous wreck, but God somehow used my weak and faltering courage to influence my teacher. You see, Daniel, even as he made his heart diamond hard in his resolve to stay faithful to God, made himself soft and winsome and shrewd in his engagement with culture. And God responded faithfully by giving Daniel and his friends health and physical vitality that was visibly apparent to the steward. So that leads us to the last principle of faithful engagement with culture. And that is confidence in the faithful sovereignty of God. Confidence in the faithful sovereignty of God. In verses 17 to 21, we read a summary, not only of this particular story, but of the entire 70 years of exile that Daniel and his friends would experience in Babylon. All the way to the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would encourage the Jews to return and to rebuild their temple. This is a snapshot of God's great faithfulness and sovereign, holy control over his people. The powerful rule over all rulers and nations, not only throughout the lives of Daniel and his friends, but over all of history. And it is confidence in the faithful, sovereign hand of God over history that enabled and fueled the faithfulness of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the face of overwhelming pressure to compromise. They had faith that however small their faithfulness God's faithfulness will be greater still. And in response to their faithfulness, we read that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, so much so that the king valued them ten times more than all the other advisors in his court. And as they became more respected, the most respected courtiers of the king, they were provided positions of immense influence in a secular pagan culture. And through God's faithfulness and blessing of these four young men, God would demonstrate his power and lordship in the most powerful empire of that time to the most influential people of that empire. And so that leads us to the first application. In the same way that God used these Jewish youth to impact Babylonian society through their positions of influence, God's people today are called to live as lights in the world. Yes. We are called to be distinct. We are called to spiritual, ethical holiness and separation from the world. But we are not called to a physical or geographical separation. 
And it goes beyond simply saying Christians are in the world, but not of it. It goes beyond that. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 18, where he said, As you sent me into the world, Father, I have also sent them into the world. Christians are not just accidental tourists who just happen to find themselves in the same boat as the rest of the world. No, the idea of being sent into the world implies a divine intentionality, a directional, missional engagement that God's people are called to. Daniel and his friends, in accepting their positions as king's courtiers, embraced their calling as ambassadors of a much greater king. In the same way, if you are a follower of Christ, have you embraced your calling as ambassadors of the King, wherever he has placed you? Whether you're a teacher, a student, engineer, plumber, doctor, electrician, homemaker, have you embraced the call of Christ for you to be his ambassador in that field in your particular sphere of influence when i was in seminary i remember our academic dean teaching from this same passage and asking us a question that has stayed with me to this day and i learned later that he was quoting from martin luther king jr when he asked will you be a thermostat christian or a thermometer Christian? Will you allow culture to shape you and conform you to its will like a thermometer going up and down as the temperature goes up and down? Or will you conform to Christ and have him influence and even transform your culture through you just as a thermostat controls the temperature in the room? Will you be a thermostat Christian or a thermometer Christian? And I vowed that that day that I will be a thermostat Christian. Have you? You might be thinking, this is challenging. You might be thinking, I don't feel inspired. I feel <laughs> discouraged. I'm not that brave. I'm just not a Daniel. I'm timid. Some people are cut out for this. I'm not. That's how you feel. I get it. God doesn't always guarantee physical safety. He doesn't always guarantee physical protection for those who honor him. And if I were in Daniel's shoes, I would be shaking as well. But here's the good news. The one who is greater than Daniel has come. Jesus, the Messiah. In the book of Isaiah, we read how the Messiah would encounter mockery and disgrace. How the Messiah would be ashamed in the sight of people. In carrying out God's will. But he responded to the threats and opposition of people by setting his face like a flint, 
meaning that he made his resolve strong and hard. Jesus faced greater temptations and had much more to lose than Daniel ever would. Yet his diamond-hard determination to carry out his Father's will never wavered, not once. And if your faith is in Christ, the Spirit of the One who set his face like a flint lives within you. His spirit of determination, his spirit of resolve, his spirit of obedience and allegiance to his Father lives within you. No matter what you might face, no matter how scared you are, no matter how wavering you might feel, the only question then is, will you trust him? Or will you trust in yourself? If you put your faith in Christ he has promised you His Spirit, so that no matter how weak and wavering our resolve, He who is within you is stronger, greater still. And learning to trust Him begins by acknowledging that you are not strong enough. You are not smart enough. You're not good enough to save yourself or influence the culture. But Jesus, the greater Daniel, is everything we cannot be. And he lives within you. I urge you, start each morning this week with a declaration of your dependence on him who is in you. The one who gives you power when you are weak. Commit yourself to honoring God, being faithful to Him, not compromising your convictions in the small things as well as the big. And remember that just as God was faithful to Daniel, He will ever be faithful to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, the greater Daniel, the one who set his face like a flint in his determination to carry out the Father's will, no matter what the cost. Thank you that we can be strong in Christ because of what he has done in our place. Lord, I pray for everyone who has not, perhaps not yet received the finished work of Jesus and have put their faith in him. I pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts. And may they come to faith in you, Lord Jesus. And for those of us who have put our faith in you, but we're feeling weak and wavering, scared in the face of pressure, pressure to compromise, Help us to remember that the one who is greater than the world is in us. That you will give us the words to speak. You'll give us the strength to stand in our weakness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you make it all possible. In your name we pray. Amen.